book of Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, verses uh, uh, 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Early in the morning, the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And sometimes there's a, a, a scripture reading, a story in the Bible that makes you want to answer that with a question mark. In fact, I heard it out there in your voices just now. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And maybe sometimes there's a Bible reading that you hear that makes you want to say, Amen, hallelujah. Yes, God, that is it. But many of us today are probably in the question mark spot with this reading. This story from uh, from Genesis 22 is one of the most horrible, horrifying stories in the whole Bible. And we want to cover our children's ears or or keep them from hearing it. We'd rather avoid this story, to skip over it, to not dwell on it. In fact, as, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I told the sermon Bible study folks, I'd like to file a complaint with the management. 
I'd like to file a complaint with the management. Why does this story have to be in here and why do I have to preach on it? Well, it's the word of the Lord. And one commentator says that this is one of the most difficult stories in the whole Bible. So why does it have to be so close to the beginning? I mean, we're just 22 chapters into the Bible. We just heard the story of creation last week, how God made the heavens and the earth, and we've skipped forward to Abraham and Isaac. And, and some people might read the Bible, you know, if they just picked it up and didn't know anything, and they get this far into the story, and they say, that's it, I'm done. If this is the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of the Old Testament, then I've seen enough. If God is this cruel and violent and demanding, I don't want to know this God. I don't want to be known by this God. I'm out. And if that's you today, listening, hearing this online, I I beg you, lean in, stay, look more closely. Because we cannot write this story off as an Old Testament God because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is our God too. It's the one whose son Jesus hung on the cross And this story is horrible, yes. But it also says something fundamental, not just about Abraham's faith or Isaac's trust. It it says something about who God is. And God reveals something here about what it means to be in a covenant relationship with God, a, a relationship of love between God and human beings. And it's a pretty important story, too. Uh, Jews, for example, read this story every year on Rosh Hashanah, on the Jewish New Year, one of those high holy days that was just at the beginning of this month. And they call this story the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And it spurred generations of rabbis and scholars and artists to reflect on it. There's even a Bob Dylan song about it. And, and, and Christians, too, read this often during Holy Week, often on Good Friday, in the context of Jesus' death. And it's, this story is told so carefully. Maybe you heard it today as you, you heard the word. There's not a word in here that shouldn't be there. And it's a story that is, is full of action, full of words of, uh, from God, of this poignant dialogue that leaves so many things unsaid. But for a story so full of emotion, there, there is No word about what's going on inside of people. We don't know how Abraham's feeling. We don't know how Isaac is feeling. We don't know how Sarah is feeling. She's not even mentioned in the story. And we can imagine some of these things, though we should be careful to not read too much into what is not there and and stick to what the story says. Now, you may be familiar with this story. You might think you know it from hearing it before, but I assure you, the more you read it, the less you'll know, and the more you'll be in wonder at our God. Now, my goal today is to help us all move from that question mark spot over to the exclamation point spot, over from, from thanks be to God to thanks be to God. Because we may not get all the way from one to the other, but at least move a little bit closer because this is the word of the Lord, our God. Now, the story begins uh, with after these things, or sometime later, as it says in the NIV. And that is a clue that we should remind ourselves about a bit of Abraham's story, so we can understand what this story means. Abraham was born in Ur, the modern-day Iraq, and God told Abraham, get up and go. Leave your land, leave your family, leave your father's household. Get up and go to the land I will show you. And God makes this unconditional promise to Abraham. It's a one-sided promise. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham gets up and goes. 
He goes to the land of Canaan and he wanders up and down the land for decades, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. And he and Sarah, his wife, are childless and he tries to take things into his own hands because how can he become a great nation if he has no children? He passes his wife off as a concubine, not once, but twice. He has a son with Hagar, his wife's slave. And finally, God gives Sarah Isaac. And Abraham and Sarah rejoice at this gift of life in their midst, this child in their old age, because God's promises do come true. And then, in a blink of an eye, the happiest years of their lives pass. And and here we are. Isaac has grown into a boy or a young man, and God again speaks to Abraham. And this time it says God tests Abraham. Now why did God need to test Abraham? Uh, What does Abraham have to prove here? Uh, A lot of people have wondered about that. Uh, Maybe the devil was tempting him, like uh, in the book of Job, though the, the text does not say that. Or maybe God needed to know for sure that Abraham really trusted God. I mean, after all, he'd messed up so many times before in their relationship. Is Abraham really a trustworthy covenant partner with God? We do not know the mind of God. We don't know why God tested Abraham. As Isaiah 40 says, who has known the mind of God or who can be his counselor? What we know is that God doesn't leave Abraham a way out. He doesn't just say, take Isaac and sacrifice him. No, there are three steps that God says before God points directly to Isaac. And the the Jewish rabbis imagine this as a conversation between God and Abraham. God says first, take your son. And Abraham says, well, I have two sons. And God answers him, your only son. And And Abraham says to God, well, each son is the only son of his mother. And God says, the one whom you love. And Abraham replies, is there any limit to a father's love? And God answers, Isaac. Now this points us to one of the strange things in the story. Abraham has two sons. Or he had two sons until he drove one of those sons out into the desert with his mother and only a skin of water between them and left them to die there. As far as Abraham knows, he has only one son left. Yes, He trusts God's promises. God's promise to make his first son, Ishmael, a great nation, and his his second son through Sarah, uh, Isaac, also the one who will be God's covenant partner, the one through whom God's covenant blessings will come true. And God asks him the impossible. Sacrifice your only son. Now, why would God ask this? Isn't child sacrifice supposed to be this abominable thing? The the scriptures are absolutely clear on that. Every time the Jewish people started sacrificing sacrificing kids like their pagan neighbors did, God came down hard on them and the prophets and the kings. And and I want to be absolutely clear today that child sacrifice is absolutely wrong and no one should do it. That seems obvious to us. But, But if you read this story carefully, it's not that simple. Because Abraham doesn't blink an eye. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't talk back to God. He, he, he should have renounced the devil and all of his works. He, he, should have never, he should have accused God of being a false god and never listened to him again. But he does not do that. The story doesn't give us, it doesn't give Abraham an out. No, no, he, he knows this is God. He knows this is his God. And he responds, here I am. Even before God tells him what to do. 
And after God makes his impossible demand, does Abraham argue? Does he, uh, slow, does he drag his feet? Does he say anything at all? No, he, he doesn't try to find a way out. He, he loads a donkey. He wakes up early the next morning. He brings his servants and Isaac. He cuts the wood for the journey. And then three days pass. And we don't know what happened during those three long days of walking to Mount Moriah. We don't know what's going on inside of Abraham's head, but I wish we could know. Or maybe in Isaac's head or the servant's head. All we get is action. All we get is movement. He gets up. He goes. He loads the donkey. He uh, uh, does the things that God commanded, just as God commanded that very first time. Get up and go. And just as God has commanded now. And on the third day, Abraham looks up. I wonder, has he been walking for three days with his head down? Uh, Maybe. Uh, And what he sees is Mount Moriah, the, the place of seeing in the distance. Mount Moriah is the same place that later in the Bible we call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It is the place of sacrifice. And Abraham tells his servants to wait with a donkey. He says, we will worship and we will come back to you. And Abraham clearly believes at this point that both he and Isaac will return. How? He doesn't know. But he can't have his servants come along because they would probably stop him from trying to do this terrible deed. And it seems that at this point, Isaac still doesn't know what's going to happen. And Abraham takes the wood for the sacrifice and he places it on Isaac's shoulders. Now, Jewish commentators from the first century say that he carried the wood for the sacrifice just like a man carries his own cross to his death. And those scribes, those those, uh, Jewish commentators didn't even know about Jesus at that point. And, And then Abraham carries the fire and the knife, it says, the most dangerous tools for the whole operation. And he cares for his son, even as he prepares to sacrifice him. And then they walk on together. They walk as one, in unity, in one spirit. And then Isaac asks that fateful question. It was bound to come up at some point. Isaac says, Father, and Abraham says, Here I am. Now this is significant. Uh, The NIV translates it as, uh, yes, my son. But the word in Hebrew is hineni. It is here I am. It is the same word that Abraham used when God called out to him at the beginning. And here's what it means. Here I am, ready, at your service. This is the, the person who volunteers for something even before they know what it is because they are so fully committed to the one who is asking. Here I am. Abraham says that to God even before he knew what God was going to ask. And now he says it to his son Isaac even before he knows what Isaac would ask. And the scholar says, just as Abraham cannot do anything but be fully present and responsive to whatever God asks, he says, Hineni, to his own son Isaac, whom he is taking up the mountain to sacrifice. He is fully committed in ways that are completely incompatible. He's fully committed to a covenant relationship with God, and he is fully committed to being a father of his only son, Isaac. Abraham travels for three and a half days with these two things in his heart. And Abraham answers Isaac's question. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. Do you hear the faith in that answer? God will provide. But do you hear also the ambiguity? The the my son at the end could be clarifying what the offering is going to be. Who the lamb is. 
It's his son. It could also be a sign of affection like, yes, my son, but there is more there too. God will provide. And the word there isn't actually provide, but something more like see. God sees. God will see to the lamb. The God who sees. The God who Hagar met out in the desert and called El Roy. The God who sees me is the same God who sends Abraham up to the Mount Moriah, to the Mount of Seeing, which Abraham saw from a distance. And now God will see the lamb. And Abraham is stuck there between two conflicting commitments. He he cannot say to Isaac, you are the sacrifice. And he cannot deny God's command to do the sacrifice. So he says what he can say, all that he knows deep down, which is that God sees, God provides. God sees me, God provides. And the answer must be sufficient for Isaac because once again, the text says, they go on together in unity as one. And when they reach that fateful place on the mountain that God told him about, Abraham gets to work. And suddenly the action slows down. You see him take and build an altar, probably from stone. He he takes the wood from Isaac's back and puts it on the altar. And, And then he binds his son, Isaac. And at this point, it's absolutely clear what's going to happen. His son, son Isaac, bound. He, he picks him up, a hundred years old though he may be, and he lays him on the altar. And then he stretches out his hand and he takes the knife to slay his son. And then everything freezes. And the angel of the Lord calls out, not once but twice, Abraham, Abraham, God's messenger must be absolutely clear at this crucial moment. And Abraham answers, Hineni, here I am. Now this is the third time he said, here I am in the story. Once again, Abraham is fully present to God, just as he is to his own son lying there on the altar. And then, whatever God says, Abraham commits to do, even before he knows what it is. And God says, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then God provides the lamb. Now I know, says God. Now, if you've been thinking all along that this is a story about Abraham and Isaac, uh, this, this makes it clear. This is a story about God. The main character in this story is God, not Abraham or Isaac. The whole book of Genesis, really the whole Bible, is the big story of God. God's story first, and then only later is it the story of human beings' relationship with God. So who is this God of Abraham? Who is this God who demands that Abraham sacrifice his only son and then stops him from completing the test? Well, first, God is the God of life. At at creation, we saw God speak, and it was so. And God makes room for life to flourish. He, He separates and creates space, and there are fish and animals and plants and human beings because God is the God of life. And here on the altar, God is the God of life too because he returns Isaac to Abraham with life. And second, God is the God of covenant because God had made a covenant with Abraham to bless him. And that covenant is based 
Not on anything Abraham can do, but on God's love alone. It's God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, unending love. And one commentator says this story shows us a God who is vulnerable, who is terribly and terrifyingly vulnerable in the context of relationship. Now, we, we'd rather use big words to talk about our God, and we should do that. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-good. But in the context of a covenant relationship, at least as far as our human minds can understand it, God is love to and for and with us. And love is vulnerable, or it is not truly love. And we know this is true because of how Christians have made sense of this story over the centuries. We read this story on Good Friday because it points to Jesus suffering on the cross. Two only sons were called to be sacrificed. Only one father went through with it. Jesus hung on the cross, vulnerable, broken, abandoned, dead, And Isaac was as good as dead to Abraham as he lay there on the altar. And God told him to stop. And God provided the lamb. And and just as God does on the cross with his own son, God provides the lamb. In the Gospel of John, where we'll go in the spring, uh, when Jesus bursts on the scene, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is what happens on the cross. Uh, But the story doesn't end there. See, Isaac rises from the altar alive, and the lamb takes his place. Uh, Jesus rises from the dead, the lamb that was slain, and he takes his seat at the right hand of God because God is the God of life, and God is the God of love. And this is God's story then, not Abraham's story. Though Abraham is faithful, it is God's story. And it's a story about faith because it's a story about the faithfulness of Jesus. A a, a few months ago in Galatians 2.20, we heard Paul say uh, this about the faithfulness of Jesus. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is what saves Not even our own faith. If if we could ever muster the faith of Abraham, it is the faithfulness of Jesus on the cross that saves us once and for all. And that is where we rest our faith. Because God sees us. God sees you and me and our faltering faith. God sees and provides the Lamb. He provides the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It is the faithfulness of Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. So if this is a story that is first about God and who God is, then is this the God that you know? Is this the God who knows you? This is not some Old Testament God of capricious vengeance and wrath. This is not the God of impossible demands and violent ways. No, this is the God of love. The God who became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ And if this story is first about who God is and then second about Abraham's faith, do you have that kind of faith? If God asked this of you and you knew it was truly God, would you have any choice in the matter? What what does God demand that you sacrifice? 
Would you trust God not out of blind obedience, but out of the impossible knowledge that God sees and God provides? God makes a way where there is no way. God sees the impossible commitments that we find ourselves stuck in, and God provides. And the author of Hebrews certainly thinks that Abraham had faith and, and that we should have faith like, like Abraham. But third, if, if this is not just a story about God and a story about Abraham's faith, but a story about impossible covenant commitments, then this is a story about us who find ourselves in them. Maybe you're fully committed to God and to your community, and you also have a loved one who is excluded or unwelcome, who does not belong, maybe because of their their body or their, their actions or their words or their ideas. How can you be fully present to God and to them? Well, you live like Abraham did. You say, here I am, hineni. You hope and pray and live like both are true and good and important because they are. Because in God, God sees and God provides and God holds everything together in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you cling to God and to your loved one. And you know that the God who sees is the God who loves, is the God who provides. And this is our God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we wonder at your presence and your word. We don't understand who you are, and yet we want to know you and be known by you. And we hear you and see you speak to Abraham and to us. And we respond to you, here I am. We are your servants and we want to be your people who live in this way in the world in our covenant commitment to you and and our covenant commitments to those we love, to each other, to our families and friends and to your world, your kingdom that you are building. And we pray, God, that you help us to be fully present to you, the God who loves us, the God who sees and provides for us in the midst of where we are. God, you hear our struggles, you hear our commitments and our loves and cares, and you take them and see them and provide for us in those places. So see us now, we pray, that we may see you in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.